As you know, we're looking at the church as a unique community called to demonstrate very unique relationships. Um, the New Testament letters recognize that relationships exist in the church um, in this sometimes what we, I've been calling an uncomfortable tension, uh, what might appear to be two apparently opposite poles. We've talked about exclusion and embrace, oneness and manyness. Um, a community can be both holy and sinful, rooted and moving. And today we're going to think about the church as arrived and on the way. And it's the kind of tension that a lot of modern theologians have already observed in the New Testament. It's nothing new. Um, they often like to call it the now and the not yet. And it frequently comes into play when people are talking about the New, New Testament teachings about the end times and how the world is going to be end and what's already been fulfilled and what has yet to be fulfilled. And that is a valuable question and a conversation about the end times, but that's not where we're going to spend our time today because I think sometimes we, get, we spend too much time there and it leads to a relatively vain speculation that doesn't affect us today. And I want what we talk about in the scriptures today to be applied and affect us now. So today, we're going to look at the now and the not yet. Something that has immediate results for us. And if you know this tension already of now and not yet, if you sort of get it and you start factoring it into your life, it's going to change the way that you live. It's going to change the way, especially change the way that you see the church and the people sitting with you now. So we're going to look at, for note takers, I'm laying this out for you. Number one, we're going to look at the problem with the church. And number two, the apostles fix and other solutions that people have for that problem. And then the third thing we want to look at is how we apply the apostles' solutions and what difference that makes for us now. So the problem in the church is that we don't get along. And like, do I need to repeat that? We don't get along, do we? We know it. Like so many other problems, it's a lot easier for outsiders to notice than it is for those who are already here with the problem to take notice. When the world says, and I want you to fill in the blank, I don't go to church because the church is full of... You got an A on that one. Yes. That's, and what they mean when they say that the church is full of hypocrites is they're saying, oh, those religious people, they talk love, 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 and then they go cut each other off in the parking lot and smile while they do it. Or maybe they say, you know, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour on Sunday morning in the American week. Or maybe what they mean when they say the church is full of hypocrites, they save pews for their friends. And all those different denominations, they split at the, top, at the drop of a hat. So why do we have this problem? Why are we apparently such hypocrites, and why can't we get along with each other? Well, I've got two reasons for that. The first one we'll, I'll talk about, and then I'm going to use the second one to transition into what I think are some of the solutions. So the first reason that I think we fail at this project is because the project is so enormous in and of itself. We can claim 
that this, that this institution and this alternative community that we like to call the church can somehow accommodate Arabs and Jews, men and women, rich and poor, whites and blacks, PB&J people and your escargot people, and it even the church can even include people who like to put PB&J on their escargot. Every nation, young and old, weak and strong. So if we were only to make the claim, well, we have this little club, and it's going to include a thin sliver of society in a very select market of choice religious consumers in the upper echelons of the Jew Jerusalem religious elite. No, that's not what we claim. We claim, and the New Testament claims, that this is the big tent. This is the biggest tent, what we want to be the universal society. And today's scripture makes it very clear. If you notice the repetition in verses 9 through 12 of the word Gentile, which in Greek means ethnoi, and we translate that to English ethnic, which really Gentiles means nations. It's the international or international society where God is inviting all of the nations. God is inviting all of the tribes, all the people and the classes and the languages of the entire human race. This is a new humanity represented by a new ancestor, a new originator. We'd call it a new Adam. This is a huge claim that we make, appallingly huge. And if we, as the church, are going to make this claim, well, that's a lot for us to live up to. For 11 o'clock on a Sunday to be the segregated hour really is the deepest imaginable hypocrisy in light of the enormous project that we're attempting as a church. But I think there's one more reason that the church has a problem and why it's so hard for us to get along. And that's the nature of conversion and the present era of God's plan for us. So you know and I know that it's not when you begin to believe the good news and when you're converted or when you're born again, whatever language you want to use, um, that's not the moment that makes you sinless. The church remains both holy and sinful. And so when you come into the church as an Arab and you meet a Jew, you still feel superior to them. We are still self-centered, self-righteous, and just plain selfish. We are now brothers and sisters in this big tent in God's ark, but yet we're not quite able to accept one another, at least not without some difficulties. So we live in the now and the not yet. And that brings us, then we have to start considering some other solutions for the problem. And so the apostles had a few solutions. Well, actually, their solution was one. We came up with extras. And the apostles' solution, if I had to summarize it in one word, would be the word hope. But before I talk about the word hope, I want to say a few words about some other solutions that people have proposed over the years. So how can the church made up of different socioeconomic levels and nationalities and outlooks and ages and cultures and tastes in food and different tastes in music and different doctrinal emphasis, different pet peeves. How do we all get along? 
Some people say, well, let's just start homogeneous churches that don't require me to rub elbows with people who are not like me. People who are, um, I want to have a church where the, all the people are in my own racial group and my own economic class and my own kind of movies and my own kind of sports teams and they have my level of education and my basic cultural orientations and then there's nothing for us to fight about. Other people have said, no, let's not, let's have all kinds of people in the church, but let's make it really easy for groups, for people to stay in each group within the church itself. We won't make our youth hang out with our old people. Let's not have our contemporary music guys hang out with our traditional music guys. Or another solution would be, well, we could all be mixed together just like the New Testament congregations were, or they seem to have been, and we can all rub elbows with each other, but you know, that's as close as we're going to get. We're not really going to share our lives together. We'll just desegregate the segregated hour, and that will be good enough. Or another solution has been, we'll make it a welcoming church where everyone's equal, but some will be a little more equal than others, and our leadership is, needs to be my type of people. Now, I could go on with this, and you get the idea. One way to help a super diverse, multicultural, multinational, national big tent church to get along is to just make it a little less diverse. Let's make it a little less ambitious, a little more doable for us. But really, that would defeat the whole project, wouldn't, wouldn't it? If we make it more doable by merely human effort, it doesn't need God. And a church that doesn't need God is an Elks Lodge or a Kiwanis Club. Good organizations, but they are not the church. Now, in contrast to an organization that holds itself together by making it doable by human ingenuity and human effort, in contrast to the apostles envisioned, what the apostles envisioned, they wanted a church that was dependent on the grace and power of God. And the way to get this grace and this power of God into our relationships is to rest on what God has done and then look forward to what God will do Looking back is what we call faith, and looking ahead is what we call hope. So because of what has been done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because we are now justified, because we're declared perfect in the sight of God, because Jesus lived and died and rose in our place, because of what God is doing now, I can look ahead to what will be fully loving. We will be someday fully in character and in practice all that God has designed us to be. Living with this active expectation is when the New Testament writers, that's what we call hope. The way we live in the now and the not yet. Now this is not the same as being optimistic or positive or cheery. It's very different from an, what I would call an unfounded, baseless assertion that everything is going to work out because it always does. What the Bible is calling hope always builds on what God has already done in the past. 
Jesus Christ lived obediently in my place, and he has paid the penalty for someone else's crimes and for my crimes. God raised him from the dead to vindicate him and to announce, you know what, this and only this is enough. The debt has been paid for everyone who simply receives it by faith. That's looking back in our history. Paul is writing in Romans chapter 5 and verse chapter 15 to people who had faith, and they had seen what had happened with Jesus. Faith looks back to what is already done. So hope looks ahead to what God will do. It's an expectation and an anticipation. So we think about sitting in the pews today next to people who without Jesus Christ's work in my life and your life, very possibly we could be enemies. And hope speaks to me. And hope says what God secured for you by Jesus and what God applied to your life by his spirit, what you now have by faith, God will someday bring that to completion and you will be the perfectly loving child of God that God has already destined and declared you to be. Expect that for yourself and expect that for the person sitting next to you, that God has already accepted you, God has already accepted her, so accept one another. Now, what we must do to live in this hope and what difference it will make in the church and what difference will it make if you decide to live this way? Well, first you must live knowingly. So in other words, you have to factor in this now and not yet thing into your life's equation and into the way you do relationships here in the church. This means that you will expect people to be different from you. You will expect that sometimes people fail you you will expect that sometimes people hurt you, and you will expect and know that you too are capable of hurting others and sinning against them. We are not yet what we fully will be, and we have to know that. However, we are not the same as we once were. People who are justified, people who are declared innocent and delightful because of Jesus, we who are made alive in the Spirit, we are recipients of grace, and we are repenting and believing. And verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Spirit who was given to us. We are changed, and we're being changed. We're being equipped right now to the glory, to glorify God and to actually help build one another up spiritually. And we have to figure that into the equation too. It blows us away that Paul would close his second reading after repeating the word hope three times. And he says, I'm convinced that you are all full of goodness and you are all filled with knowledge and you're able to admonish or instruct each other. Basically, Paul's saying in Romans 15, look, we're not yet what we're going to be, but we are being changed and we are being equipped and we know that all, we're full of God's good gifts 
and is love, and so I'm persuaded that a former Klansman and a former Black Panther can not only tolerate one another, but in the same congregation, but they can actually build up one another. Real character change is possible today. Perfection is not yet. But living in hope that one day we'll be a, it will be a, a congregation that's able to love fully, looking forward to heaven, won't make people weird or otherworldly. It will actually make people who are useful and who will bless and transform the world and one another in practical ways. Second, we have to live knowingly and live believingly because all of this is very dependent on God. We'll never be able to pull this off on our own determination. And there's a stress in these texts on God who gives. And then it implies that there's a corresponding action for us, namely that we would receive or believe. I have to face each and every day taking a stand that because of what Jesus Christ did, I have peace with God. God is my parent. I know that God delights in me because of what God's perfect son did for me in my place. I can't change that today, but I can be changed by that today. And Lord, I want you to change me. I want you to keep pouring your love into my heart, and I will keep receiving and believing. I know I will be what God has declared me to be and what God has destined me to be, and I can rejoice in that hope and that expectation. I can even rejoice in the bad stuff that comes my way because my strength, it will strengthen me, it will change me, it will cause me to anticipate more the coming day. Now the third thing, you live knowingly, you live believingly, and you live obediently. I am destined to be perfectly loving, so now I need to seek what I am destined to be. Scripture tells us, bear the weaknesses of the weak. Let each one please their neighbor for their neighbor's good and building up, not just to be a people pleaser, but to be a people builder. Accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. These are mandates that enable us to live a life of hope. I'm gonna invite the band to come forward. You've had to listen to me for four Sundays about our life together. And I would like to say, First Covenant Church, let's do it. Let's find a way to walk hand in hand when we don't see eye to eye. And let's do it hopefully. We don't all agree on everything. I've covered that. <laughs> but First Covenant Church has an opportunity that a lot of congregations don't have. We can listen again and again and again to the gospel, and we can live with hope that allows us and enables us to really love and build up one another. If we're believing in the gospel and we live in hope, we can glorify God by moving toward what the people that we might not even love if I had never met Jesus. We can live in hope and move toward the people that we might never know if it was outside of Jesus Christ. What a great challenge. Let's do it with hope.
I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing our closing song.